0: Section 58 of Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. An authentic record of remarkable cases by John B. Lewis and Charles C. Bombow. Homicide, Part 35, The Wichita Outlaws, Winner and McNutt In the summer of 1873, two young men named Winner and McNutt of Kansas City obtained an insurance policy for $5,000 upon the life of McNutt from the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company. The policy was in favor of a woman from Clay County, Missouri, with whom McNutt had been living about a year in Leavenworth in Kansas City. In order to legalize the policy, McNutt married the woman and soon after removed to Wichita, a new and flourishing town in western Kansas, much frequented by stock raisers. McNutt was accompanied by Winner. Just before Christmas, Winner returned to Kansas City for the purpose of finding a young man whom he could quietly murder and whose body he could palm off on the insurance company as that of McNutt. He visited Mrs. McNutt, who had remained in Kansas City and disclosed the plot to her. A young man named Sevier was induced to accompany Winner to Wichita on promise of a job of work, and was never seen alive after he arrived there with Winner. He was taken, according to McNutt's confession, to the paint shop used by the murderers, and there intoxicated with brandy and drugged with ether. cords were bound tightly around his body, his clothing was saturated with kerosene, and the shop was set on fire. His remains were found among the embers of the building, and at first were supposed to be those of McNutt. Winner reported that they had been attacked in the night, "'McNutt killed, and the shop robbed and burned. "'His story excited suspicion, "'for there were no bruises on his person excepting slight scratches. "'Mrs. McNutt immediately claimed the $5,000 insurance, "'and the parties in interest at once proceeded to investigate the case. "'On the day when this tragedy occurred, "'Mrs. McNutt wrote a letter to her husband, "'which was intercepted by the authorities.' McNutt having fled to Missouri under the assumed name of Leonard. In the course of the letter she wrote, "'I am up to my eyes in trouble. I can't help it, for I must talk, although you will be angry with me for writing it. Do cut loose from that man, Winner. He is a mean, pinchback liar. If you carry out the plans you have under way, we shall be ruined and disgraced. Before I will have the name of stealing and murdering for wealth,' I'd beg on my hands and knees. I'd rather burn in fire and brimstone for your sake than to have you branded as a murderer. Do let me sell my bed and clothing and come down to Wichita and let us try and earn an honest living. I will work and do all I can to make our home happy and comfortable again. Life of my soul, let me warn you to cut loose from that wicked man, Winner who is the cause of all our troubles. On the face of the envelope were the following instructions to the postmaster. Let no one have this but the one it is directed to, and if not called for within three days, return the same to Number 602 Main Street, Kansas City only, Mrs. J. W. McNutt. The letter was read to the jury of inquest over Sevier's remains. Winner and Mrs. McNutt were arrested and imprisoned, and notwithstanding Winner's refusal to make any disclosures, and Mrs. McNutt's rejection of overtures to turn states' evidence, the proofs against them rapidly accumulated. A clue to McNutt's whereabouts was followed up by ex-Sheriff William Smith of Sedgwick County. Having it obtained at Topeka a requisition from the governor, he proceeded to Leavenworth City and took the Chicago and Rock Island Road to Plattsburg. Immediately after arrival at that point, he procured a horse and a guide and rode all night in the supposed direction of the criminal, visiting a number of small country post offices and inquiring at each whether a party by the name of Leonard procured mail there. Next day, he reached the Glen Garden Post Office in Ray County and was told that a party of that name was getting mail at that office, and that he was working on a farm about one mile from there. Smith left his horse and borrowed a shotgun of his informant for the purpose of killing chickens, he said, and proceeded to the farm. On arriving at or near the farmhouse, which stood in a clearing, he espied McNutt in the backyard chopping wood. He passed around the farm to the east side, withstood a large barn. He approached the barn, keeping it between himself and his game, then farther on towards the house, about a hundred yards and within twenty feet of where McNutt was chopping wood, stood a corn crib. He worked his way cautiously up to the corner of the corn crib, stepped out, and cocked his gun on the chap, and told him to throw down his axe and hold up his hands, for he was his prisoner which order he promptly obeyed, remarking while being handcuffed, "'Well, you have got me at last.' Smith said, "'Yes, I have been hunting you for some time.' He was placed on a horse and taken to Plattsburgh, and thence to Wichita. The skillful manner in which Smith ferreted out the rascal, and the coolness with which he effected the capture, commended him to general admiration." Reckless of consequences, the wretched McNutt voluntarily unbosomed himself of the particulars of the tragedy. The atrocious nature of the crime is revealed in the following confession, to which, when written out, his signature was appended. I was born in the state of Missouri on the 22nd day of April 1842. I am 31 years of age, was married to my present wife last October. Have no children, nor do I wish any, for the legacy that I should leave them would not be of a very desirable character, that which Cain left his descendants. By trade, I am a painter, worked at my trade in Kansas City for several years before I came down to this place, met Winner last May. We were a good deal together. He proposed several ways by which we could make some of that desirable article." money but i would not listen to him as i was afraid to bring disgrace upon my family among other things he proposed that we should organize a band of bandits and go over the country plundering and robbing he related to me some of the most diabolical crimes that i have ever heard saying that he was the author and that he had never been under any inconvenience with the law that the law was a farce "'and a man with common sense and a little cheek "'could elude and defy it at pleasure. "'But I would not go in with him. "'I told him I was no rogue "'and would not beat one for any amount of money. "'He laughed at me and called me chicken-hearted. "'At last, towards the close of September, "'he proposed to me the crime "'that was perpetrated here last December. "'I would not listen to him at first. But finally, in an evil moment, I allowed him to talk it up to me, and he painted it in such glowing and sure colors that I began to feel interested in it, and after a while was carried away with the intoxicating thought that I might yet be worth some money, and not have to be a dog all my life. We talked up the best mode for the accomplishment of our object. I had my life insured in the sum of five thousand dollars. But as it would not be paid unless to some near relative, and one whom we could trust, it was decided that I had better marry the woman with whom I was then living, and we would be sure of not losing what we committed crime for. It took us a long time to decide where we could best accomplish our object. At first it was decided that Kansas City would be the best place, and we even went so far as to engage a store on Main Street where we could hang out our sign as painters, and by this means be enabled to have on hand a large stock of oils without attracting or exciting suspicion. But one day, an unlucky day for us both, Winner said that he had found a much better place, a city where we could execute our plans in daylight without being bothered with the law a place where men were killed every day in the week, and that place was Wichita. He showed me several pieces in the newspaper about murders that had been committed, and in them it stated that the offenders were allowed their liberty. We came down to this place and opened out our shop in a small frame building on Main Street, over a millinery shop. We worked at our trade for a number of weeks and built up quite a business. I tried to persuade Winner to give it up, but he would not. Not knowing who we could get for our victim delayed us for a long time. A citizen of Wichita would not do, as it would create such a sensation that some of the facts might come out. At last, Winner went to Kansas City, saying that he had a friend who was looking for a job and would bring him home and use him, and that we could finish him up the same night. He was gone about a week, and said that he had made arrangements with a painter by the name of Sevier, to come down and work for them, and that he would be down the next evening. I went to the depot to meet him, but he did not come. We received a letter next day, stating that he had no money, and the pass that Winner gave him would not answer. We sent him the money by mail, and for fear that he would not get it, telegraphed also. He came down on the 12.30 train next evening. Winner met him at the depot and brought him up to our room, where he slept. At this time, we had about 30 gallons of benzene and 20 gallons of coal oil, together with a large amount of oils. Sevier appeared like a very clever, good-hearted fellow. My heart failed me, so that I could do nothing, but Winner was in his element. He knew just how to do everything and do it well. We began to prepare him for death by giving him brandy to drink, of which we had a large supply. After he had drank about a quart, we mixed ether with the rest, as it would not leave any deposit in the stomach. When he was so thoroughly unconscious that he could do nothing, we were prepared to do the bloody work which Winner's hands itched to perform. Winner poured down Severus' throat about a pint of ether which he had brought from Kansas City. We then placed his head in an iron pot filled with benzene and set fire to it. We watched him as his head began to simmer and crackle like burning meat. But as he was unconscious, I do not think he felt any pain. When his features were burned and disfigured beyond recognition, we laid him in the bed, which was saturated and dripping with oil. "'Our next operation was to fix up Winner "'so that it would give the public the impression "'that someone had tried to murder him as well as myself. "'I took a bunch of flesh between my thumb and finger "'and ran the blade of a pair of scissors through "'and cut it open. "'We then opened one of Sevier's veins "'and took out about a quart of blood "'which Winner spread over himself "'and then made himself look as though "'he had lost a great deal of blood. "'I then took my departure.' leaving my vest and empty pocketbook at the back of the shop and left on the train for Atchison, and from there went to Missouri. I escaped detection on the train by riding between the baggage car and locomotive. Ever since then, I have been in Missouri. I knew nothing about the developments until two days before my arrest, when I read the verdict of the jury in the Journal of Commerce. I do not know what Winner did after I left, "'but I am sure he must have acted his part well, "'as he is a most accomplished rogue. "'This is all I know of the affair. "'I tried my best to persuade Winner "'to give up the thought of the crime, "'but could not succeed. "'I told him it would not succeed, "'especially at Wichita, "'for the officers are too sharp and vigilant, "'more so than any other city I know of in the West. "'I don't know how the officers found out where I was.' J. W. McNutt, Count Pomerase, and Madame Pau, In reasoning from circumstantial evidence, increased cogency is often given to the general weight of evidence by the conspicuous presence of an urgent motive for crime. A very interesting illustration is furnished in the trial, in France, of the Count de Pomerase for the murder of Madame Pau. It appeared that Madame Powell had been left a widow in 1859, with three children. The prisoner was a physician who knew and attended her husband. Madame Powell became the prisoner's mistress up to the time of his marriage in 1860 with Mademoiselle de Beese. In June 1863, the prisoner proposed to the deceased to organize a fraud on six French and two English life insurance companies. By insuring the life of the deceased, and then, on her simulating illness, by inducing the insurance companies to exchange the policies for annuities. Insurances were accordingly effected for 550,000 francs, for which the policies were made transferable by endorsement. The prisoner advanced the premiums, having the policies transferred by Madame Powell to himself by deed, and a will made by her in his own favor. The motive, of course, alleged for the murder of the deceased, was that by her death, the prisoner would come into immediate possession of the 550,000 francs, and be relieved from what was possibly an inconvenient connection. The prisoner induced Madame Powell to feign illness, and it was alleged in the act accusation, that in November 1863 he administered digitalis. Dr. Gordineau was called in and was told she had fallen downstairs. This was contradicted at the trial by Madame Pau's children. Madame Pau died. Doctors Taddeur and Marcin were charged by the court to make post-mortem examination. They made several experiments, and in their official report, concluded that the deceased had died by poison. Dr. Roussin thought the poison was digitalis, of which the prisoner had large quantities in his possession. It was alleged that the prisoner well knew that digitalis leaves no traces. In the course of the experiments, digitalis was tried on dogs and cats, and they died in the same way as other animals— to which expectorated matter and contents of the digestive tube of the deceased had been administered. Dr. Herbert, on the contrary, thought that the fact of the floor of the deceased's room, which had contained matter in a state of putrefaction, having been recently scraped, was sufficient to account for all the circumstances of the death it appeared that the prisoner had spoken freely to several witnesses about the contemplated fraud on the insurance companies. Now, if this fraud had been seriously contemplated, or actually completed, and the prisoner was in the way of being put in the receipt of an income during Madame Powell's life, instead of the expectation of a lump sum at her death, the motive, of course, would have been all the other way. It was the prisoner's object to show that he did so seriously intend to carry out this fraud up to the last. And the case is almost unique in exhibiting a prisoner laboring to prove his innocence of one crime by proving his complicity in another only a few degrees less abominable. Some of his statements were inconsistent with manifest facts. Some, such as his assertion that he paid the deceased an annuity of one hundred pounds suicidal to his own professed motives the result was his conviction and execution in this case the evidence was on other grounds just of that uncertain description which makes evidence of efficient motive all important the defense certainly was most plausible and ingenious and if concerted contemporaneously with the crime, showed a marvelous foresight and sagacity, for there were three courses left to the jury, the prisoner might have been proved guilty of no crime at all, or of attempted fraud, and not of the murder, or of the murder and not the attempted fraud." A distinct conception of the several motives likely to be present on each successive hypothesis was the most critical part of the investigation. End of section 58.